Lord, Father, we pray that you would uh, just help us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord God, the things that you have laid out for us. Lord, we pray that you be glorified and magnified, God, as we seek to know you. We want to know you like you know us. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself tonight, open your word to us, God, that we might uh, just be able to grasp, Lord Jesus, all that you are. And Father, we just pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. Amen. First Chronicles tonight. We're going to start at around chapter 2 where we left off last time. And uh, it's, it's kind of exciting for me. This is uh, quite the challenge. I don't know how many of you guys have had an opportunity to go through First uh, and Second Chronicles. But First Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogies. So we made it all the way through two last time almost. I think we'll make it to four this time. That's my goal. We will see. But as we look at it, it's important that we understand why. Whenever genealogies are in the scriptures, they're, they're laid out for us because there's something that the, the, the author is trying to tell us. The author of First and Second Chronicles is probably Ezra. Ezra, there's a book after his name. Ezra is one of the, the, the people God uses to bring the people back into the promised land. Back to Jerusalem. If you remember, as we went through First and Second Kings, we saw a history, an overview of the nation, north and south. We saw north immediately go into disobedience of God, and they, about 150 years before the south, go into captivity. They're conquered by a people called the Assyrians, and melded in, they become a part of the Assyrian nation. The southern kingdom, Judah, does a little better because they follow the Lord a little better than they did. Still, not great, but they last at 150 years longer than, uh, than the northern tribe. And they go into captivity. There's nobody left. When Nebuchadnezzar finishes with Israel, he mows over Jerusalem and he goes back and, and just, just leaves nothing there. Just the very poorest, a small remnant. And they don't even stay there. 
they run to Egypt. And then Egypt rebels against Nebuchadnezzar and they die there. So there's a, just a whole people group is gone now. The writer of First and Second Chronicles writes First and Second Chronicles and lays out these genealogies to say they're not gone. Right here. Let me tell you what happened. This is where this family went. That's where that family went. This is how the, the lineage of the people stayed together. Ultimately, they're going to focus their attention on Judah and on David. When we get to chapter 10, we're going to start again with David as king. And we'll go through like a rehash of the history. But the book of First and Second Chronicles takes us from written after everything's over. So this is a guy looking back. And as he's looking back, he lays out for us, here's where all the people are. Let me lay out for you. I know their names. They're still here. And there's some real gems. If you remember last time, I talked to you about some of the exciting things. If you decide you want to take the journey and, and figure out what all the names mean, they're not just there random. God didn't just pick these people out of a hat. Their names tell a story. The way they're listed and how they're placed in there. But... That's another study for another day. But as we work our way through, here's the people. And he's going to take us not only to the captivity, but past it. And he's going to say, here's what happened to the people. Here's how they came back to the land. It's not ever just a story about how judgment fell and, and, and this happened. There's always woven in on the page of scripture the story of redemption. Who made it back? Remember, God promised all those people in Babylon, if you make a life, 70 years, I'll bring you back. If you stop fighting, 70 years, you're doing a timeout. But when the timeout's over, you'll come back. I'll bring the people back. The same God that did one is going to do the other. You remember we were talking about the genealogies last time and the fact that God knows all these people. And the journey for you and I is one to recognize that God knows all these guys. He knows their names. He knows what they did. He knows if they were good. He knows if they were bad. He knows it all. And the point is not that we look at that and we say, man, God knows all these people, but that we would recognize this is how God wants to be known. Do you know God this way? Do you know His heart? Like he knows the names of all these people? Do you long to, want to, desire to know him? Because the person we left off of, you remember, in verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, The son of Carmi was Achar, the troubler of Israel, who transgressed into the accursed thing. We're talking about Achan. You guys remember Achan, right? The story of Joshua. The scripture says he took the accursed thing. Well, the, the word for accursed means devoted. It was what was devoted to God. And we talked last time, right? Jesus, when, when he was approached by whether or not man should pay taxes, what did he say? Render to Caesar what's Caesar. What's the second part? Render to God the things that are his. And the challenge was, is your, is your life his? Or is your life yours and you let him borrow some of it? He said, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give unto God the things that are God's. If we are taking the devoted things for ourselves, if we're focused on self, my needs, whatever it may pile into, whatever that part is, if we're doing that, we're no different than Achan. We're taking what belongs to God. We're taking his stuff. 
And so the genealogy reminds us. He's reminding us of the past so that we can look forward to the future and say, I want to learn from these things. I want to learn from the people who went before me, who, who came after me. We'll pick it up in verse 9. It says in verse 9, The sons of Hezron who were born to him were Jerah, Michel, Ram, and Caleb. And Ram begot Aminadab, and Aminadab begot Nation, leader of the children of Judah. As we look at this section, we come, we notice that, if you notice something, he started with the middle child. He told you the three kids, Jeremiel, Ram, and Caleb, and then he starts with Ram. There's a reason for that, because Ram is going to take us to David. And David, in the kingly line, is always going to be a focus in genealogies. Why? Who else comes from a line of David? Jesus, the Messiah. So this has preeminence whenever they do a genealogy. So this is one of the ways that we see the preeminence here of what's going on. He's laying out for us the family tree. It says, Nashon begot Salma, and Salma begot Boaz. You remember Boaz? Boaz, one of the pillars in the temple, was named Boaz. Boaz means strength. Boaz is one half of the love story in the book of Ruth. Ruth marries Boaz, but who is Ruth? Moabitess. Oh yeah, she's a Gentile. A Gentile bride that comes into the family, if you will, the, the people of Israel, through whom comes David. And that other fellow a little further down we talked about earlier, what's his name again? The Messiah? Jesus, right? Jesus. Jesus is not ashamed of none of his family tree. He's got a lot of special stories on some of those branches. Well, Boaz, he's, he, he's written about in Ruth. And Boaz's child through Ruth, you remember his name? It's right here, verse 12. Boaz begot Obed. And Obed begot Jesse. So we got Jesse, who is who? The father of David, right? The father of David, through Ruth. Jesse begot Eliab, his firstborn. Abinadab, his second. Shimea, the third. Uh, Nathaniel, the fourth. Redai, the fifth. Ozum, the sixth. And David, the seventh. Now there's one small problem. In Samuel, they have eight kids. In Chronicles, he has seven. Well, people point at that all the time. and say, what's the problem? There's, there's seven in one and eight in the other. Now the eight aren't named in Samuel. It just says he had eight sons. Seven are named in Chronicles. Most people believe that's because one of the kids died. They didn't make it. That wasn't so odd, especially in Bible times. If you had children in a harsh environment for them not to make it to the age uh, where they would be accounted as an adult to their bar mitzvah. You've heard of that, right? Where they, where they officially become that part of the family. So one of David's brothers didn't make it. David's still the youngest. Ends up the seventh here. And then it speaks of his sisters. Now their sisters were Zariah and Abigail. And the sons of Zariah were Abishai, Joab, and, and Asael. Three. Now, not very often does the Bible ever give a genealogy of the woman. So this is kind of different. But there's a specific reason why they're given. Because these are three of David's generals. You've heard all their names, haven't you? Joab, uh, Abishai, and Asahel. Asahel ends up being killed in a battle by, uh, I'm pretty sure he gets killed by Amasa. I want to say Amasa. It's before Amasa. Who's the guy Joab killed before Amasa? Anyways, we'll figure it out. 
But Asahel gets killed. Joab and his brother uh, Abishai, they go out and, and they get revenge. And that's what those two guys were all about. They are cousins of David. Joab, Abishai, Asahel. Then it says Abigail, that's the other sister, she bore Amasa. And the father of Amasa was Jether the Ishmaelite. So Amasa is also David's cousin. David's son Absalom, you guys remember Absalom? David's son Absalom rebels against David and Absalom's general is named Amasa. That's this Amasa, David's cousin. David's cousin Amasa goes with Absalom. You'll remember at a time, Absalom is, is defeated and, the, and David makes peace with Amasa. He makes peace with him and says, I'm going to make you one of my generals. We'll tell Joab everything's going to be okay. If you remember, then Joab, who didn't want to make peace with him, killed him. When we read all those stories, you, we sometimes think these are random people. They're cousins. They grew up in the same neighborhood. They played on the same block. Families were close every time there was a Passover, a celebration to come together. These are kids who grew up together, but later on in life end up banging their heads. You see, the, the truth is, men is the same everywhere you go. I once had someone tell me, kids are the same no matter where you go. I think it's true of humankind, period. They're the same. They're, everybody's got a story. Everybody's got an issue. Everybody's got a place they come from. And this is the place they come from. And God knew them all. He knew every one of them. He knew the generals. He knew Amasa the day he was born, that he was going to side with Absalom. He knew Joab was going to kill him. He knew all of those things. And he tried to function and work within their lives, but... Every man has a choice, right? Whether or not he's going to obey, he's going to listen, he's going to follow the Lord, or he's going to do his own thing. And what you'll see is when Jesus comes and he says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And you go through these genealogies and you see all these families and how many ended up down the path of destruction. You begin to understand when Jesus said, and narrow is the way that leads to everlasting life. Because man wants to keep, ultimately man wants to make the choice that I'm not surrendered, I'm going to add God to my life. And if all you do is add God to your life, you will never submit to His will, you will never surrender to His design in your life, you'll never see God do great and miraculous things through you, though there is no difference between you and Elijah. That's what the Bible says. No difference. Except Elijah, he's sold out. He's all in. David, he's sold out. He's all in. You want to read the, the list of the sold out? Go to Hebrews chapter 12 or 11. The Hall of Faith. It's all there. Hebrews chapter 11. Lay it all out and see all those names that God knows. Well, here's their whole story. Their whole history. Verse 18, it says, Caleb, the son of Hezron... Uh, had children by Azubah, his wife, and by Jeroith. <clears throat> now these were her sons, Jesher, Shobab, and Ardon. And when Azubah died, Caleb took Ephrath as his wife, who bore him Hur. And Hur begot Uri, and Uri begot Bezalel. Bezalel. That 
name may not ring a bell for you, but back when we were studying the tabernacle and the building of all the things God wanted to use in the temple for his worship, he said, I've called a special craftsman, Bezalel. He said, I've gifted him to do things nobody else can do. Did you know that was possible? Well, when I was in Israel, the last time I was in Israel, they got the menorah. You know, the Temple Institute is making all the stuff for the temple because they're preparing for the temple for one day when they regain the temple mount and building their temple. So as they prepared, they made everything. And we were standing with our guide and we were looking at the menorah. And they got the menorah posted. You can't, you know, covered in glass and all, but the big old menorah. You know what the menorah is, right? Seven branch candle stand, the thing of which Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. All six branches attached to one vine. Six, the number of men. Seven, the number of perfection. The vine and the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All these things point to the menorah. Well, as we look at that menorah, I was looking at it and I said, hey, that doesn't look like it's a hammered work. You guys hammered that? And he said, nope. I said, well, the Bible says it had to be hammered. It couldn't be molded. And they said, yep, that's what the Bible says. Well, how come you molded it? We don't know how they did it. We tried hammering and hammering and hammering, and it wouldn't, it would break, it would fold, it would fall. Gold's a soft metal. We don't know how Bezalel built it. But God said, I called Bezalel specifically for this task, to build those things. You know the last place you see the menorah? If you go to Rome, I think it's in Rome, you'll see the, the Arch of Titus. And one of the things that Romans are carrying away in the Arch of Titus, the destruction of Israel in 70 AD, is the menorah. Last time it was seen. Some people think it's in the Vatican. If you can get the Pope to let you look through the treasures there, you may find it. I don't know. But they don't have it. So we have Bezalel. Bezalel, this guy, you know... To the end, who is specifically gifted by God for something spectacular. And what we discover in scriptures, that's the truth for everyone. Paul would say in the book of Corinthians that every one of us is a part of the body of Christ, right? We've all heard that concept. And in that concept of being a part of the body of Christ, what the Lord is dictating is that each of us have a, a, a job within the body to do. In fact, Paul goes so far to say the body is missing something if each part is not doing its, its job, what it does. We know that from our physical bodies, don't we? If something stops working, usually you have to go to a doctor to get it fixed, right? Take it out, cut on it, you know, zap it with electricity, whatever they got to do to get that thing working. Well, the same way, if Bezalel was specifically designed as a human being, as a craftsman, to make the beautiful works of art in the temple. Why do we think that the gifts and talents that we have are somehow less glorifying to God even because they're not speaking or singing? The ability to paint, the ability to craft, the ability to build, the ability to, to, to do things, lay tile, the ability to plant plants, the ability to do all the things that is required for mankind to live every one of those things a gift from god and has its place within a body of christ bezalel found his it's important it's important that we all realize there's places for us places for us all 
from, from verse 21 on, we have uh, the conclusion uh, as we follow through the sons of Judah. Working our way right now through Judah. Judah doesn't end until chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. Now afterward, Hezron uh, went in to the daughter of Machir, the father of Gilead, whom he married before he was 60 years old. And she bore him Segub, and Segub begot Jair, who had 23 cities in the land of Gilead. Jeshur and Syria took from them the towns of Jair and Kenneth as its towns, 60 towns. All these belonged to the sons of Machir, the father of Gilead. What this tells us is this section of scripture lays out for us that the tribe of Manasseh, who was from that area, began to integrate within the tribe of Judah. The point of the genealogy is to say there's no such thing as ten lost tribes. God's going to tell us as he works his way through all the tribes that they're all here. They're all accounted for. They all went into captivity and they all came out. Are you guys with me? And then he's going to go through from the history from that point forward of what's going to go on. But he wants us to know the Lord. It doesn't do us any good to know that the, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. If God can't keep them. Do you understand? If God can't keep them, how does he keep you? Don't tell me because you're holier. Or more righteous. Or you got it more together. The ability to keep us is dependent on the power of the all-powerful God. He kept them. He put them in the captivity. brought them out. He does the same thing in our lives. He works in through. Carries us all the way through as we put our trust in Him. After Hezron died in Caleb Epiphrath, Hezron's wife Abijah bore him Ashur, the father of Tekoa. Now the sons of Jere- uh, Jeremiel, the, f- the firstborn of Hezron, were Ram. Now remember, we're still talking about those three sons. This is the firstborn now. Jeremiel, the firstborn Hezron, were Ram, the, the firstborn, and Bunah, Oren, Ozim, and Ahijah. Jeremiel had another wife whose name was Atara. She was the mother of Onam. The sons of Ram, the firstborn of Jeremiel, were Maas, Jamin, and Eker. The sons of Onam were Shammai and Jada. The sons of Shemai were Nadab and Abishur. And the name of the wife of Abishur was Abihel. And she bore him Aban and Molid. And the sons of Nadab were Seled and Apem. Seled died without children. There's going to be three of those right here in a row. The son of Apem was Ishi. The son of Ishi, Seishan. Seishan's son was Ahila. But the sons of Jada, the brother of Shemaiah, were Jether and Jonathan. Jether died without children. The sons of Jonathan were Peleth and Zaza. These were the sons of Jeremiel. Now Sheshan had no sons, only daughters. And Sheshan had an Egyptian servant whose name was Jarha. And Sheshan gave his daughter to Jarha, his wife, and his servant, his wife, and she bore him a tie. And a tie begot Nathan, and Nathan Zabad, and Zabad Ethlal, and Ethlal begot Obed, and Obed begot Jehu, and Jehu begot Azariah, and Azariah begot Heles, and Heles begot Elisei, and Elisei begot Sismai, and Sismai begot Shalem, and Shalem begot Jechamiah, and Jechamiah begot Elishama. We work our way through that. It's kind of interesting as you work your way uh, through those names. There's uh, definitely some pretty neat things as we go through uh, in, the, in the listing of those names. So I encourage you guys, take a look at them. 
verse 42, the descendants of Caleb. The brother of Jeremiel, where Misha is firstborn, who was the father of Ziph, the sons of Marashah, the father of Hebron. The sons of Hebron were Korah, Tapua, Rechem, Shema. Shema begot Raham, the father of Jacoam. Rechem begot Shemai, and the son of Shemai was Maon, Maon, and Maon was the father of Bethshur. Ephah, Caleb's concubine, begot Horon, Moza, and Gaziz. And Haram begot Gaziz. And the sons of Jadai were Regem, Jotham, Jeshon, you try it. Pelet, Ephah, and Saf. Maaka, Caleb's concubine, begot Sheber and Tirchanai. She also bore him Saaf, the father of Madmana, Shiva, the father of Machbena, the father of Gibeah, and the daughter of Caleb was Aksa. These were the descendants of Caleb, the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Epaphrath, were Shobal, the father of Kirjath-Jerim. Kirjath-Jerim is a city that we read about in the Old Testament. It's a border town that links together the three tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Dan. So as we work our way through these names, and a lot of these names we don't, are people we don't know anything about, but they're talking about areas, and they're talking about the people from Dan, and Benjamin, and Judah, and their lineage, and who from what family married whom and came through. And then they tie it to the city that Shobal was the father of Kirjath-Jerim. Verse 51, Salma was the father of Bethlehem. You remember Bethlehem, right? The city of David, the place where Jesus was to be born. The father of that city, his name was Salma. And Haref, the father of Beth-Gadar. So what they're doing is they're linking names, names with regions, regions to the nation of Israel who came out of exile, who would say, hey, here's where the different tribes ended up. Here's how they settled. Here's where their families, how their families came together. We're working our way right now to David. Then from David, we're going to work our way through the kings. And then from the kings, we're going to work our way to the exile, through the exile and their journey home. Well, as he goes on, it says, now the families of Kirjath-Jerim, were the, the Ithrites, the Puthites, the Shumathites, the Mishrites, and from these came the Zorathites and the Eshtolites. All of these uh, different people groups or tribes are all linked to Judah. Judah became this giant nation, almost a melting pot of the area, and people began to become a part of that tribe, working their way through that tribe. The sons of Salma were Bethlehem, uh, the Nethophites, uh, Atroth, Beth, Joab, half of the Manathites, and the Zorites. And the families of the scribes who went at Jabez were the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, and the Sukathites. These were the Kenites who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rahab. The Kenites, the families of the book. It's an interesting family in the Bible. A lot of people want to draw. You remember Caleb, the Caleb from the Bible, Joshua and Caleb, the guy who wanted to take on giants all the time. A lot of people will draw his family tree through the Kenites, who are the family are known as the people of the book. Kind of an interesting study if you're interested in those kind of things. But as they work their way through, we come now to chapter 3, which brings us to David. Okay, we find ourselves with David. These 
or the sons of David, who was born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon. Amnon's the one who raped his sister Tamar and started the blood feud with Absalom, which led to the division or, or the civil war between David and his son Absalom. The firstborn was Amnon. Absalom killed him. By Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. The second was Daniel. He's also called uh, Kiliab uh, in, uh, in Samuel. By Abigail, the Carmelitess. You remember Abigail? She was the one who was married to the fool. Remember the fool? Nabal? Nabal was cursing David when David was coming to help out. And Abigail calmed David down. And Naboth ends up choking on a chicken bone. And dying. And so he takes Abigail as his second wife. Or third wife or whatever she was. Uh, the third son, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath. Adonijah uh, does battle, sort of tries to supersede his brother Solomon when Solomon becomes king. The fifth, Sephtiah by Abital. The sixth, Ithrim by his wife Eglah. These six were born to him in Hebron. There he reigned seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. And these were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. Bathsheba is an alternate spelling of, can you guess? Bathsheba, good job. Bathsheba, these are her kids. Bathsheba had uh, four sons by David. Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Solomon being the youngest of the four. Nathan, it's interesting was the name of the prophet who confronted David for his sin. And it would appear that David then named one of his kids Nathan uh, as a result for, for uh, Nathan being willing to say to David, you are that man. Uh, verse 6, it says, And there was Ibhar, Elishama, Ephelet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Elphelet, nine in all. And these were all the sons of David besides the sons of uh, the concubines and Tamar, their sister. So then it moves from David to Solomon. Solomon's son was Rehoboam. Abijah was his son. Asa his son. Jehoshaphat his son. We just went through First and Second Kings. What you have from chapter 10 through chapter 16 is a list of the kings that followed through the line of David, which would rule over Judah. So the list of kings, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah his son, Asa his son, Jehoshaphat his son, Joram his son, Ahaziah his son, Joash his son, Amaziah his son, Azariah his son. I just want you to remember, Azariah had two names. His other name was Uzziah. You may remember a famous scripture in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah was a good king who overreached his bounds, tried to do things God didn't call him to do, and he ends up getting leprosy and, uh, and dying of leprosy. So that's Azariah. His son is Jotham. His son Ahaz. His son Hezekiah. You remember Hezekiah is the one who got 10 more years from the Lord, right? He got 10 more years. He was supposed to die. He rolled over on his bed. He said, I have always been faithful. He wept. God gave him ten more years. He fathered a son named Manasseh. 
Manasseh is the longest reigning king of all the kings in Judah, and he was the most evil. At the end of Manasseh's reign, you remember Manasseh had a, a time where he came back to the Lord, but it was a kind of a case of needle and the damage is done. Uh, in the final years of his reign, there wasn't too much he could turn around from the, you know, I think he reigned 65 years, something like that. So in the final few years, he couldn't do undo what was done the 60 years prior. So Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah. Ammon, his son. And Josiah, his son. And remember Josiah. Josiah, another good king who brought revival, right? We talked about him as we went through Second Kings. The sons of Josiah. Johanan, the, the firstborn. The second, Jehoiakim. The third, Zedekiah. And the fourth, Shalom. You'll remember when Josiah died, his sons go through a series of of different things because they're being conquered by, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar, first by Egypt, and then by Nebuchadnezzar, and every time Nebuchadnezzar conquered him, he put another king on the throne and tried to get that guy to, to pay attention. So I'll put you on the throne, you be good, that guy would be good for a little while, and then he'd have to take him off the throne, put another guy on the throne. So this is what was going on through his sons. Uh, the third Zedekiah, the fourth Shalem. The sons of Jehoiakim were Jeconiah, and Zedekiah, his son. Zedekiah, the last king uh, who's going to be taken. You remember there were two prophecies. The two prophecies was that he was going to be taken to Babylon. The second prophecy that he would never see it. You remember? He rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came to him, put out his eyes, first killed all his sons in front of him, then put out his eyes and took him to uh, Babylon. It's going to be um, part of the reason why and the continuance of the line of David as he continues to go on. Verse 17 tells us the sons of Jeconiah, Asir, and Sheltiel, his son, and uh, Malkarim, Pediah, Shenazar, Jeconiah, Hoshama, and Nedabiah. The sons of Pediah were Zerubbabel and Shimei. You might remember the name Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is a big influence in the return of the exiles. He's one of the ones that God uses to bring the exiles back. The sons of Zerubbabel were Meshalam, Hananiah, Shelomith, their sister, and Hashubah, Ochel, Berechiah, Hazadiah, Jashub, Hesed, five in all. The sons of Hananiah were Pelatiah and Jeseiah, and the sons of Rephaiah, and the sons of Arnon, the sons of Obadiah. The sons of Shechaniah, the son of Shechaniah, was Shemaiah. The sons of Shemaiah were Hattush, Egal, Mariah, Neriah, and Shephat, six in all. The sons of Neriah were Elunai, Hezekiah, Azarachem, three in all. The sons of Elunai were Horaviah, Elishib, Peliah, Akab, Johanan, Deliah, and Anani, seven in all. Now the sons of Judah were Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. So we're still working our way through Judah. We just talked about where the line of David went. It paused, come back, and now we're working through uh, Perez, Hezron, Carmi, Hur, and Shobal. Reiah the son of Shobal begot Jehath, Jehath begot Ahumai, Lahad. These were the families of the Zorathites. The Zorathites, this is one of the areas that was built by Rehoboam. 
The reason it's important in the genealogy is because there was a group of people living there that could post their genealogy back to the nation of Israel after the exile. They're post-exilic. After the exile, they settled in Zorah, and this is their genealogy, what ties them back toward the promises of God. We read about it in Nehemiah 11. These were the sons of Father Etam, Jezreel, Ishma, Idbash, and the name of their sister was Hazeleponi. Penuel was the father of Gedor. Ezer was the father of Hushah. These were the sons of Hur, the firstborn of Epiphrath, the father of Bethlehem. You've heard that name, right? Bethlehem of Epiphrath? Yeah, it's in prophecy all throughout the book of Matthew. Uh, Nasher, the father of Tekoa, had two wives, Hila and Nara. Nara begot him Ahuzam, Hefer, Temeni, Hashtari. These were the sons of Nara. The sons of Hela were Zereth, Zoar, and Ethnon. And Kos begot Anub, Zebo, Zebibo, Zebiba, Zobiba. <laughs> and the families of Arahel, the son of Haram. And now, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, I bore him in pain. Now, all of a sudden, in the middle of all this genealogy, and if you don't ever read genealogies, you miss them, the Lord puts a little tidbit, little information, a little something, little nuggets all throughout. But as we work our way through, we come to a fellow named Jabez. Jabez was named Sorrowful. He's named Sorrowful because something was painful about his birth. Whether it was extremely painful, just the, the rearing is doubtful. Probably more likely there's something wrong with him or something that happened during the birth that uh, was a problem for the mother. So he gets the name Sorrowful. Here's how the people believed. Back in those days, you named kids for a reason. And if they named, if your name was something like Sorrowful or painful, the belief was throughout your life that was what was going to follow you. Evil would follow you and pain. Your life is going to be a life that's constantly coming unhinged. That's what Jabez's name was. Seems like he got kind of a raw deal. You know, he don't get to pick his name. His mom picks it for him. Kind of basing it on the idea of who she thinks he's going to be. But the Bible tells us as we look at Jabez, it says, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. He was more honorable than his brothers, even though his name was um, pain, sorrowful. You hurt. And Jabez called on the God of Israel. It's one of the, well, it's the only prayer you're going to find as we work our way through the genealogies. But it's kind of an interesting thing as we look at, at Jabez. Here you have a kid who's born where everybody thinks his life is never going to amount to anything. Anybody ever able to kind of get their mind wrapped around that? You're never going to be nothing. Never going to be a, you're never going to amount to anything from the time he was born. That's what they thought. Jabez could have done a lot of things. He could have tried to make himself better. He could have bought himself some self-help books. He could have tried to follow a hundred different programs. But the first thing we read about him is that he called on the Lord. 
Jabez called on the name of the Lord. What set Jabez apart and made him more honorable than his brothers is that he became a man of prayer. Jabez became a man who was not afraid to pray. And as we look at his prayer, it's the last thing we're going to look at today. We'll just go through verse 10. But as we look at his prayer, there are several points in his prayer that I want you to see as Jabez prayed. Now here's what people did. People are weird. So you guys remember a few years ago there was this big craze about the prayer of Jabez. It's like all of a sudden somebody was actually read the genealogy and they, they found it. So they wrote a book and they started talking about, we all need to start praying the prayer of Jabez. No. It's not the prayer that Jabez prayed that mattered. It's the person that Jabez prayed to. It's the attitude that Jabez prayed with. It's the reasoning he went after the Lord in the first place that was the reason behind God answering Jabez. You could print out the prayer of Jabez and you can put it on your refrigerator and pray it every day. But if you don't have the passion and compassion and the desire and the attitude that Jabez had in the prayer, it's just words. Don't matter what you say. There was this craze. They sold books. They went nuts over the prayer of Jabez. I love the prayer of Jabez because I love the attitude it shows me in him. You have this guy. We don't know how old he was. We don't know nothing about him. All we know is they named a town after him. Because we read it a little while ago. They talked about Jabez, the town. So they named a town after this guy. We know that this guy ends up being relatively successful even though his family said you'll never amount to nothing but it wasn't because he did anything other than the fact that he prayed he prayed he was willing to be a man of prayer he called on the name of the lord the number one most neglected discipline in every christian's life is the number one thing that will bring power into a christian's life and that's prayer If you're not experiencing those things in your life, then it is because you are not praying. Stop. Stop trying to live your life by some kind of a a theorem or theory or a plan or just do what God's Word says. What happens if we actually do what it says? What happens if we actually live our life by the book? What happens if we actually... it's, It's amazing. I can't tell you how many guys come to me from failed relationships. Failed relationship after failed relationship after failed relationship. And they come to me with a, got a failed relationship. And if we look back over the relationship, did they build the relationship based on the book? No, that's not important. This is like the 24th century or something, right? Well, 21st century, something like that. So they say, this is 21st century. We don't do things that way. Right? You got to test drive the car before you buy it. So you should live together, and if you can't get along, cut and run. Try it again later. And then you have these series. Fail relationship, fail relationship, fail relationship. Shouldn't surprise us, because they do the same thing in high school. Come on, Jackie, don't start talking about dating. Look, I don't care you date, you don't date. What do we do in, what do, what do we do in high school? We have a relationship, we hook up, break up. Then what? Get another relationship, right? And do what? Hook up and break up. And then what do you do for the next one? Hook up and break up. What, do you, what is that called? It's called a rut. If that's the rut you're going to live your life by, that's the road you're on. That's the attitude you're setting. What happens if we live by the book? What happens if we do it God's way? 
Oh, come on, that's crazy. In those days, they didn't even know their wife when they got married. Yeah, so it should have been harder. Right? Somehow it worked. Hmm. Hey, I don't care how you do it. I don't care if you date or you don't date. I'm just saying, live by the book. If the book says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, what do you think that means? Wow, it's a shock. You were able to decipher what that verse means without any Hebrew or Greek. The idea is simple. The idea is simple. There are certain areas in our life God calls to be sacred. He says, keep that sacred. Make it holy. Holy doesn't mean some idea of it being righteous and goody two-shoes. Holy means that's an area of my life I set apart. I set it apart and I say that's special. It's not just something I'm just going to throw out. And we do it God's way. I don't know. What happens if we do that? What if your parents told you your whole life you're not going to amount to nothing? Well, Jabez, case in point. What did he do? He prayed. That's it. He paid a price. He prayed a passionate prayer. The very next line begins with the word, Oh, that you would. In the, in the Hebrew, that phrase is a phrase of extreme passion and desire. This is not just a flippant prayer. It's not just something that he sat down one day and he said, God bless his food to the nourishment of our bodies before they ate. This was a prayer come out of his soul. Passionate prayer. He came before the Lord. He said, oh, that you would. And then he begins with his request. One, bless me indeed. A whole concept behind being blessed by the Lord. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What did blessed are mean? You guys remember? Oh, how happy. To be blessed is to be happy. Bless me indeed. What's he asking? God, make my life matter. Make me happy. Where's it found? What's he looking for? He's looking for God to work in his life. You make me happy. Bless me indeed. Oh God, bless me indeed. Not oh God, give me money. Oh God, buy me a house. Oh God, give me junk. Lord, make me happy. I find my happiness, my completeness, my, my, the totality of my person wrapped up in our relationship. Bless me indeed. Part two, enlarge my territory. That means give me more responsibility. Who is ever praying that these days? No, what do we say? Lord, get rid of some of my responsibility. Take it away. I don't want no more. I talk about it on Sunday. God, God often calls, woos, brings, sends the people that are in motion. That doesn't mean people are never weary. We can go throughout the, here and find weary people, can't we? You can find when Moses was weary. You can find when Elijah was, was weary. You can find when David was weary. There are lots of weary, weariness. But where did they find their strength again? In the relationship with the Lord, right? So Jabez, not only is he saying, Lord, I want you to be my happiness. You're it. You're what is going to complete me. But then he says, give me more. Give me more responsibilities. 
Enlarge my borders. Make my tent bigger. Give me more responsibility. I want to take on more responsibility. I want to take on more things. I've shared with you before, nobody ever gets to the end of their life and says, Oh, I wish I could have at the end of my life, you know, had some of that, changed some of that. Right? We never have any regrets when we come to the end of our life, do we? Oh, do we sometimes? One of the things I've often heard is I wish I would have took more chances and made more mistakes. Not been afraid to do the things that I thought I could have done, but didn't. Jabez is saying, I want more. I want more opportunities. I want more responsibility. Enlarge my territory. And then he says, the third thing he asked for, that your hand would be with me. He doesn't say, I want wisdom, although the Bible does tell us we can ask for that, but we're talking about Jabez's prayer, right? Jabez doesn't ask for an answer, doesn't ask for a word, doesn't ask for a direction. What does he ask for? Him. Lord, I want your hand on my life. I want you on me. I want your, just touch me all the time. Don't take your hand off my head. If you let go of me, I'm going to end up somewhere I shouldn't be. My family said I'm never going to amount to nothing. So Lord, I'm asking you, your hand on me. You put your hand on me. You're the answer. God's the answer. His presence is the answer. His presence in our life. His presence in and through us. And this is what he's asking for. That you, your hand would be with me. And then the fourth thing, that you would keep me from evil. You keep me from evil. Your presence, your hand. Who is it that keeps any of us? It's not we ourselves, it's God who keeps us. Jesus said that we're in His hands, right? And then He said that, that we're also in whose hands? The Father's hands. He said nobody can pluck you out. The argument has been raised whether or not someone can jump. But it says, no one can pluck you out. You're not going to accidentally lose nothing. If you have it, you, you can't lose it because God keeps you. God holds you. He says, you keep me from evil. Your hand is on me. Guide me, lead me, direct me. Then I'm following you. The last thing he says, that I might not cause pain. That my life might be of value. As my mom says, I'm not ever going to be nothing. Because of the way I came into the world, they say I'm not going to be nothing. So he prayed. He called on, a, on the Lord, the God of the universe, with a passionate prayer. He said, you, Lord God, you complete me. You give me more responsibilities. I want your presence with me. I want you to keep me from evil so that my life may be of value. So I don't hurt nobody else. Hmm. Do you see the last line? So God granted his request. Isn't that not cool? Now I know as I'm reading through all those names. And we're working our way to Jabez. Somebody's going. Oh dear God. Let's just skip the nine chapters. Tell us there's a genealogy. And let's go. But if we do we miss Jabez. If we do, we miss those little pieces, that little connection that maybe somebody has with another name. Because, guys, the God of all the universe recorded every one of them. Didn't he? And every one of those got a purpose. 
The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. True or false? Is that only the scripture that we like to read? Or is it all scripture? Is there life in it all? Sure there is. Is there things God will show us? Sure there is. I've told you before, I got at least one sister who's chomping at the bit to find all the, the meanings of these names. They're out there. They're out there. Those names meant something. For a purpose, for a place, they all have stories. What did they do? Who did they love? They're just names in a book to you and I. But they're all, they're all part of the heart of God. Even the ones God lost. They're ones he loved. Aren't they? Didn't they all matter to him? What about the kids over at the skate park right now? Do they matter to him? What about the, the ones pulling out of high school like a bunch of maniacs running you off the road? Do they matter to him? Most days. Yeah. They all matter. They're all apart. There's a story. There's a link. There's a, every one of them was a life just like yours and mine. And God wrote them all down. And you and I, 2,000 years later, sit down and we read them and we think, this could not be any more boring. But every one of them mattered to God. If every one of those mattered to Him, even Jabez, of whom they said nothing good will ever come out of him, how much do you matter to Him? He didn't change. God said, I change not. He is immutable. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for just the opportunity to, to read your word, God, for the nuggets that you lay out for us. Lord, I pray that we might apply the lesson uh, of Jabez there at the end, to see in this just this perfect, this perfect little nugget of a man that they said nothing good would ever come from him. He's never going to accomplish anything great in his life. But he prayed. He was passionate. He believed. He trusted. And God, you did miraculous things. God, I pray for each of us, Lord, that we would choose to be men and women of prayer. That we would choose to be not just like a list of names of people who found the broad way of destruction but that we would be like those who followed the narrow way to eternal life. God, I pray that we would recognize the value that each of these lives had to the Lord God Almighty. And that we would recognize our life has value to Him too, no matter what anybody says. And if we cry on the name of the Lord, even as Hezekiah did, or even as any of the others, Jabez included, the Bible says the Lord granted his request. Lord, I pray that you would work in the lives each and every one of us as we seek to honor you. To glorify you for who you are. And that you might be magnified in this place. Lord, as we go, may we not just be people who have added you to our life. But may we be people for whom you are our life. 
We pray that you be glorified and magnified as we go from this place. We give you all the honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.